Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a discussion of films centered around those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss The Passion of Joan of Arc on our inaugural podcast. In April of 1928, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc was released in Danish cinemas. Dreyer's work was initiated by the Société Générale des Films, whose membership had invited the acclaimed Dane to come to France and author a motion picture. Inspired by the renewed interest in Joan of Arc, whom the Catholic Church had canonized a saint in 1920, following World War I, Dreyer elected to tell the story of Joan of Arc's trial and eventual execution at the hand of, her, of ecclesial authorities. Based on the historical transcripts of Joan of Arc's trial, the film condenses an 18-month process into a timeline of one day. Documenting the power struggle between highly educated clerics and a simple devout peasant, Dreyer crafts a tale that is both epic and intimate. René Falconetti stars in the titular role, delivering an iconic performance that has been hailed for its conviction and power since viewers first caught sight of it at the twilight of the silent film era. Accentuated by the high-contrast lighting of cinematographer Rudolf Matei, Falconetti and the supporting players tell the story of a soul devoted to God, but caught in the strife of this world. Politics and religion intermingle in a rid trial with a predetermined conclusion that Joan of Arc cannot escape, but only transcend. Despite building the most expensive sets in French cinema at the time, Dreyer opts to avoid making Joan of Arc's story a spectacle. A deeply humanistic approach matched by an austere aesthetic drives the narrative of the passion of Joan of Arc. Meshing expressionism and realism, Dreyer and his assembled talent tap into the human experience of fear, love, courage, and faith. Utilizing innovative close-ups and evocative camera angles, the passion of Joan of Arc presents a vivid enactment of its central character, both as historical figure and religious icon. The immediacy of Dreyer's filmmaking makes for an impactful viewing experience, which no doubt contributed to the film's controversial premiere in France, where it was subject to edits imposed by government censors and the Archbishop of Paris. Now recognized as a true classic, The Passion of Joan of Arc was, rele was released by the Criterion Collection on DVD in 1999, restored from the version found in an Oslo mental hospital in 1981. Set to the impressive Voices of Light, written by Richard Einhorn, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc now has a place in home theaters as its editing, cinematography, acting, and direction offer contemporary filmmakers and audiences a window into the power of cinema. Join Matt and me as we discuss the historical significance, thematic power, and cinematic novelty of Carl Theodore Dreyer's most celebrated work. So Matt, having uh, recently just watched this movie again, what uh, thoughts do you have about it? I have to start by saying uh, just uh, the power of, of the uh, the camera in this film is just undeniable. I always think of the historical context of this film. Uh, the art of cinema was barely 30 years old at the time it was made. And just the, the level of uh, expressionism in the visuals uh, just seems so mature and um, and assured that uh, it's it's very hard to deny its power um, you know it, we were fortunate enough to to see this film uh, with a, a pretty packed audience at, at a local cathedral uh, which uh, screened the film with a live orchestra and choir uh, 
uh, performing the score, Voices of Light, which in my mind is inseparable from the film at this point. It's how I first experienced the film on the Criterion DVD with that score. Uh, there have been many scores written for it over the years, but uh, to me it's it's very hard to uh, divorce the two uh, at this point. The music that was written for it by Einhorn is um, is fantastic and a great listen on its own. Uh, so I, just first impressions, uh, visually, uh, this film uh, bowls me over every time I see it, so uh, I felt like that would be a good starting place for us. Well, it's an innovative one. You know, it's important to recognize... The way in the time which it was made, the way it was shot was very revolutionary. Uh, you hadn't traditionally had such a reliance upon close-ups like Dreyer did in this particular film, uh, which really highlighted the performances and made it so incredibly immediate and intimate. Uh, you alluded to it, Matt, in terms of us watching this uh, live, well, the live performance of Einhorn's music uh, as the film was being projected recently, uh, and. I recall just people around us talking about the the power that it had on them. You know, here we are in an age where you have such visceral thrills from the, the things like Captain America, and yet this movie had a kind of a power and a hold on an audience. And I have to attribute that to the power of the close-ups, and not in a cheap sort of way. It wasn't exploitative in the use of close-ups. It wasn't uh, a trick that was being played. It was rather somehow in which the close-ups really allowed you to enter into the state of mind for the characters that are being portrayed, and really made this character, this figure of Joan of Arc, as she's presented in the film, more than just a historical person, you know, uh, really somebody that you felt like you knew, uh, not just a figure that was being retrieved from the past. And so I really do think that the the innovative technique, the most probably lasting significance of this movie really comes down to the fact that Dreyer chose to make it so reliant upon those close-ups and almost giving you a lack of cinematic space uh, because he had been so devoted to simply documenting the expressions of the characters. Uh, I actually think it's somewhat uh, humorous that here you have these elaborate sets being designed and built uh, with such great cost, and you almost don't even see them. They almost don't even have a role in the movie uh, because he, he he's so reliant upon what he did with those close-ups. Yeah, that definitely occurred to me as well. I mean, the um, the fact that historically this had been some of the most expensive sets ever built, uh, to me, is kind of amusing because when you actually do see the sets, they look very austere. They're uh, basically like concrete rooms with... Uh, a very German expressionism sort of vibe. And, and I think uh, Herman Vorm was one of the production designers who did um, Dr. Caligari. So, I mean, you can see those um, those influences, certainly. So they certainly weren't going for realism in terms of the historical setting, but uh, Dreyer very much resists showing off the sets and, and the actors are front and center. And the, the lighting, of course, is very strategic uh, to... Uh, uh, show Joan in a very uh, more of a flat lighting to to make her more appealing, and, and of course her accusers are, uh, are are lit in such a way to accentuate all the wrinkles and moles and, and and things that we noticed. But it creates a very suffocating atmosphere, and it certainly puts the audience uh, in the uh, in the center seat there with with Joan to to create that level of tension. So. Uh, and I have to mention the the power of the moving camera 
in this film as well. Um, some pretty elaborate dolly shots and uh, extended takes just kind of uh, showing the, the setting of the courtroom in particular uh, and very, uh, very well coordinated. And uh, it seemed, I got the sense there was probably a great deal of rehearsal that, that took place prior to this. I'm not sure if that's the case, but uh, it certainly seems like it. Uh, the, the shots are very well mapped out and the, and the characters are, are hitting their, marks and cues as the camera passes so uh it's it's something that certainly holds up to to this day well dreyer was a bit of uh you know the kubrick of his day you know in terms of the way he would just go over and over and over a scene and reshoot 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 uh to the point that you know you he was actually able because the initial print even without the censorship wouldn't have made it because uh it was in a lab fire and so the original print is is lost or basically was all lost. Uh, and he was able to reassemble virtually an identical cut of it uh, just using alternate takes because he had gone over it so often with so many different uh, renditions of the various shots. So he did have that kind of perfectionism about him. And it does pay off, I think, because you do have in this almost a sense of desperation that I don't know that the characters or the actors could have been able to present uh, were it not for the fact that they had been put through such rigorous rehearsal and rigorous performance. Uh, and I suspect, even though we don't see the sets, we do get to have a, a feel for what they did, because no doubt those actors were inhabiting those sets, and it really did give them a sense of the space, of the aesthetic, of the of the atmosphere, of what they were trying to document in this particular film. Um, I think, you know, it probably is worth just taking a moment here to actually just delve into Falconetti's performance, you know, it's been hailed by people throughout the decades here as being one of the greatest performances, if not the greatest cinematic performance of all time. She was only in two movies. Uh, she mostly preferred the theater as opposed to film and never actually really understood why anybody particularly cared about this performance. Uh, I recall when I first saw this film, it would have been probably back in 2001, 2002 as an undergrad. And her performance to me was the movie. If you don't have her, it doesn't really matter what else happens at this movie. It doesn't really hold up. And I would say it's if it's not the best performance by a, a female in the history of cinema, it's got to be in the top five. Uh, there's something about it, even without having the advantage of her of her spoken word, that she seems to be so immediately connected to us and us to her. And it's all through just the very subtlest of gestures, the way she cocks her head, uh, the way she hesitates, the way she, you know, will uh, create a little ex expression within her face. Uh, really, truly a remarkable, remarkable performance. And even with those close-ups, while they do give the advantage of us really getting a real significant view of the face, we also don't get any sense of the body. We don't get a sense of anything else that she was doing there. Uh, and so she was given a hell of a task, uh, and I think delivers on it in a way that really you just don't ever see uh, by anybody else. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that this was Falconetti's last role. Uh, maybe the, the grueling experience of doing this film or uh, Dreyer's direction put her off cinema. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to uh, note that she was more of a theater actor. And I do think that style of acting lends itself more to silent film. Uh, at the same time, it, I would agree with you. I mean, the performance is very much about those nuanced details. And, and her eyes in particular, I think, are just 
such a transcendent uh, quality is conveyed by them. I mean, it, it, it seems like she's just channeling, you know, the power of God, for lack of a better term, uh, in her performance. And it, it is one of the, the pillars of, of cinema in terms of um, female performances or any performance, I would argue. Well, and I thought, you know, what I really appreciate about her is that, you know, she's the one that we all remember, uh, but uh, she also isn't show-offy about it. You know, the other performances are quite, quite rich as well. Uh, of course, none of us really remembers who the other actors are in the in the film, but the uh, there is a sense of ensemble, and, um, you know, the, the, the beauty of the performance is that it very much is reacting to what else was going on with those other actors on that set. And I think that she kind of made them better. You know, we, we appreciate and understand these, uh, the court officials, uh, based on what she's doing. And uh, we, they become menacing based on what she is doing. Uh, she has a way of, I think, elevating the rest of the cast, uh, in this particular work. I really, I just, I, I, I can't say enough about this particular performance. It strikes me as being, uh, just one of those things that if there's no other if there's no other merit to this movie, this in of itself is enough reason to watch the film. Fortunately, there's a lot of other merits to it, but this performance really is something to behold. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that Dreyer did shoot the film in chronological order, which uh, probably aided her performance in terms of uh, experiencing the interrogation and the torture and and all those steps leading up to uh, the stake. And that probably was an assist to her as well, uh, that directorial choice. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that's, that's important to note. Well, I, you know, it makes you wonder just how much would uh, other films benefit from a chronological shooting? Uh, you know, the only one I can think of recently that did it was The Revenant. Yeah, that's, which, I thought of that too, yeah. But, you know, despite my reservations about it, I'm sure it did certainly uh, help in terms of the performances, you know, the sense of the desperation of those characters. And so no doubt that would have helped in this particular case as well. Yeah. And it's interesting to, to note the Revenant, not to get too far off on a tangent, but uh, I wonder if the, uh, the filmmakers uh, watched this film at all, because there are certainly similarities in terms of the visuals and the use of close-ups mm -hmm. and very much a, a story of, of a character uh, transcending his circumstances and, and going through a hellish experience. So there's definitely parallels to be drawn there. And maybe that kind of film uh, benefits from a chronological shooting order, if that's possible, because it does translate to the screen. Once the character does get to the, the end game, mm -hmm. that may be. Um, so maybe, maybe DiCaprio's Oscar is uh, less deserved than people think. I don't know. Right. Well, I won't comment on that since it'll take us down a rabbit hole. <laughs> well, you know, that's not exactly directly related to the film, but it's an interesting point of consideration is just how we came to have this particular edition. It's not necessarily exactly what was premiered in 1928. It's pretty close from all uh, that we can know, but not probably exactly identical. And of course, even having Einhorn's music wasn't something that would have been a part of the experience back when it was first released. And like you said, Matt, I really can't picture that music without this film or this film without that music anymore. Uh, and certainly the music does shape how the visuals are received. Uh, but I just think it's fascinating about the um, 
the nature of this film and how it is, you know, basically almost a miracle that it's with us here today, that you have it nearly lost once right after it's first made. And then you have another cut that's very close, but not identical, that is assembled by Dreyer himself, and that also is lost to fire. And then you have nearly a 50-year gap in which then you're, or excuse me, almost a 60-year gap in which you have no real exact availability of this except for some very butchered uh, uh, editions that have emerged in Europe. And then you find this gem in an Oslo mental hospital of all places. Uh, and it, to me, it was when I was thinking about this is how limited uh, or how very tangential our connection to the past is. And particularly the fact that this uh, is based on the transcript of Joan of Arc's trial, the actual transcript, which itself was manipulated by the people that were conducting the trial. Uh, so we don't exactly know the whole history of what happened. We don't necessarily know exactly what Dreyer made back in 1928. We have a good idea of it, you know, probably a 99.9% uh, idea of it, maybe even. Uh, but we don't have the full picture of it. And I can't help but just see kind of an appreciation of how this film, how it has come to us now here in the 21st century, uh, is not really all that unlike any other historical event. Uh, you know, we, we have certainly some glimpse of it, but we can't ever know the whole story of it. And that, to me, is what's real fascinating about this portrayal of Joan of Arc. It is, on one level, very much, it does feel like you're seeing Joan of Arc herself, the real Joan of Arc. And at the same time, you are getting an interpretation of her. You're not getting actually her. None of us has met her or knows exactly who she was. Uh, and that's kind of the majesty of film, you know, that it has this ability to, to create a, a perception of reality that isn't 100% exactly necessarily what has happened, uh, but nonetheless helps us to find some degree of truth, uh, even if it's very, you know, a very limited gr grasp that we have on it. Yeah, even though it's very much through an artistic filter and through a viewpoint that may be very much of, a, of its time, you know, to, to say, okay, this is uh, the late 20s, the time when German Expressionism was huge, uh, silent film was really kind of uh, approaching its pinnacle in many ways. Uh, so, so we are seeing things very much in a historical context of, of the 1920s. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does feel like a historical document. Uh, mm -hmm. the fact that the script was drawn from those real documents and who's to say how accurate those are. And, and again, you mentioned that, and this was a, uh, many, many month process really distilled down into what is depicted as one day in the film. But the, the, the powers there and uh, the fact that, uh, as you said, the fact that we have this film in any form really is a miracle and we should be very thankful for it. So uh, being found in a, a janitor's closet in uh, an Oslo a mental hospital is a, it's an amazing story. It sounds made up, but it's true. Apparently the director of the institution at the time was a published historian, so it was possible he was just a film fan and before the days of Blu-ray and DVD, he wanted his own copy, and, and thankfully he wanted that. So we have the uh, the film today. Right. You know, it's also interesting, you mentioned just about when it was made, 28. You know, you, this is after, of course, World War One. Joan of Arc has been made a saint at this point, you know, and, and so she has a renewed national importance to France. 
which in of itself made for the film's production to be complicated, as there were a number of people in France, uh, French royalists and nationalists, that really didn't want a non-French director for it, uh, and thought that it would be an abomination, you know, to have this happen in this particular way. Uh, and I I watched this film, uh, you know, just recently, as we as we mentioned, and I was struck with how it does seem to have a very subtle strain of um, indictment against civil authority. Uh, you know, the, obviously the the figures here are both uh, religious figures as well as uh, political figures. You know, the, on the court, uh, but it does have a kind of a skepticism towards them. Uh, and here you have this at a time where Joan of Arc was a national heroine, a time in which you know France was enjoying the victory it had won in World War One at great cost, uh, and now you have a film that takes this figure, uh, this heroic national figure, uh, and basically shows you, hey, it's your own people that actually put her to death. It's your own uh, leaders that put her to death. And uh, I can't help but just appreciate the the irony that can be seen in that particular period in which it was made. I, I don't know to what extent it would have been appreciated at the time, uh, but certainly it, it does resonate right now today. And, and that may have been part of the reason why it was under such scrutiny or criticism at the time. I, I, I'm not sure if Dreyer was a Protestant, but you know, certainly coming from Scandinavia, he wasn't uh, Catholic. Exactly. He certainly wasn't Catholic. So just the idea of a, a non-French, non-Catholic director coming in and, and taking such a uh, an iconic French figure, taking that subject on, I'm sure was a scandalous thing. And I think uh, even Lillian Gish was considered for the role of Joan, which probably would have made it even more scandalous if that had occurred. Uh, but it, it is interesting to look at it through that lens. So is Dreyer making an indictment of of Catholicism here or uh, of the French? I suppose you could interpret it in several ways. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's he doesn't really get into the history at all, right? I mean, it, historically, these court figures, a lot of them actually weren't clerics, which was in of itself a reason why not that long after Joan's execution, the, the Catholic Church overturned the verdict you know, and pronounced her to be a martyr uh, well before her beatification and canonization. Um, and the uh, the process was a very rigged one. It was it was a trial that had, historically speaking, was designed specifically to kill her by English loyalists near the end of the Hundred Years' War. Uh, and so it was an entirely stacked court, mostly consisting of civil authorities that had no particular claim or jurisdiction on an ecclesiastical trial of heresy. And then those bishops that had been put on it were also deliberately stacked to be pro-English. Little known fact is that Joan of Arc actually protested this, right, and claimed, I I have a right under the church's law to have a balanced representation here, and uh, wasn't ever given to her. And she also wasn't given uh, any sort of uh, legal counsel, which was also, again, supposed to be legally provided for her. And so at one level, I I do see that the film is probably not even necessarily intending it, but a a wonderful uh, example of uh, what happens when politics and religion collide too closely, that you have this religious trial that's being presented here, but it's really purely a politically motivated event. And I think that uh, 
that makes for an uncomfortable reality for us. You know, we don't necessarily like to think about how those two get blended together so easily, uh, one manipulating the other. Uh, but I, I, I'll say as a Catholic watching the film, I never took it to have any sort of anti-religious theme. As a matter of fact, towards the end, the way it shows Joan just receiving the Eucharist or, uh, you know, her religious devotion is treated with the utmost sincerity and respect. And there isn't any sort of questioning of her, of whether she was sane or anything like that, which you might see in a more modern presentation of it. It, it takes her on her own and takes her faith seriously. Uh, and that was probably in the watching most recently, what was most striking to me about it was how it portrayed her faith uh, in juxtaposition towards those around her, that you have this peasant girl with no particular theological training and yet being shown to have such a theological superiority over over all these well-trained uh, experts of the law, experts of church doctrine. Uh, you know, there's that famous exchange in the film uh, where they ask her if she's in a state of grace and her response would be, if I am, you know, may God keep me there. And if I'm not, may God put me in it. Uh, you know, there's a true occurrence from the trial, but, you know, very clearly put into the film, I think, to show that it wasn't trying to take any sort of controversial approach to Joan uh, or to her times, but rather simply just trying to tell us the truth about how she met an unfortunate demise that could have been avoided. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you could argue that, you know, this is an indictment of the church hierarchy to a degree or how that can be uh, corrupted or influenced by, by political ambitions. But I, I, I would agree that I, I certainly never felt that this was an indictment of Catholicism or Christianity. In fact, that's uh, the, the focus of the film is to illustrate that in a very truthful and earnest way and to, and to show that, you know, this is something that has, this level of belief and this level of devotion can transcend the the man-made political rigmarole that that we tend to create for ourselves, uh, and how that uh, becomes intertwined in in church uh, doctrine or politics. Or uh, as as a Protestant myself, it's it's something that I I can uh, recognize and, and certainly appreciate as well. So, you know, it's funny, just watching it, uh, I was thinking about the the nature of this trial that is being displayed here. And, uh, of course, the title of the film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, is clearly a reference, uh, a way of trying to create for us as the audience a connection between Joan and uh, Jesus Christ himself, right? Having had his passion, that's where that word would normally be used. But I actually was thinking about another uh, particular rigged trial in which somebody went to their death based on fabricated evidence, uh, and that was uh, Socrates. Uh, you know, Socrates was killed in ancient Greece and Athens uh, based on an entirely rigged process. Uh, and, you know, Joan of Arc here in this particular film is, you know, I think why it's so timeless for us is because we've seen this kind of thing where somebody, for some reason, runs a follow of the established order uh, has you know, made powerful enemies and, you know, the very processes that are meant to actually protect the person that are meant to make sure they can safeguard us as a, as a people are all of a sudden turned against that particular person. And so you can go to the ancient world with, uh, Socrates, you can go obviously to the person of Christ. You can go to Joan of Arc in the middle ages. You can look around and sure find something in our own experience, our own lifetime 
where this is something that we all kind of know is out there, right? This this possibility. I think that's why this film, despite being so uh, far removed from our own contemporary of scene films, still has a power and ability to transfix an audience, even uh, all these years later, that we have a way, it has a way of speaking about a reality that we all know is out there. Uh, maybe we've experienced on, on a lesser scale ourselves, or perhaps we have seen it uh, with somebody in our life, or we just know of it in our culture. Uh, but it does point to the the fragile nature of, of uh, civilization and how good people can all of a sudden find themselves completely sidelined uh, by a political process. From a visual standpoint, and back to the, the visuals in the film, many, many uh, comparisons are drawn between uh, the Passion of Christ and, and Joan's experience. So the, the, the crown of thorns or uh, the crown of... Um, kind of the wicker crown that, that she was making for herself mm -hmm. uh, is a, a, a bit uh, symbolic as well that, okay, well, is she creating this situation for herself? She's, she's uh, stitched together her own crown of thorns, so to speak. Uh, but uh, it really is her, her level of devotion that is clearly the focus. Well, we've talked a little bit about just the film itself, uh, you know, the music, right, the Voices of Light uh, uh, music that has uh, accompanied it now for, gosh, I can't remember when Einhorn even wrote the piece. Was it back in the 80s? It was 1994. 94. You know, I, I don't think I've ever actually listened to the score completely away from this particular film. And, of course, it really isn't technically speaking a score. It's music that was inspired by it. He had seen a, a particular print of it and was so moved that he was led to make this particular uh this particular compos composition uh you know and so it's not really specifically a score but it certainly syncs up and works well as a score uh for the film uh, i guess whenever i have heard little bits of it away from the film i feel like it's always lacking i mean because it is just m completely molded to the film on my and uh in my mind uh, but it is an incredible, just rich musical piece. Yeah, I, I've listened to it many times separately from the film. I, I mean, I have the um, that uh, piece on CD, and I think Sony Classical's release of that was one of their best-selling albums. So it kind of pierced the uh, the veil into uh, popular music for a while, especially mm -hmm. upon its release. Um, you know, it's. It, to say that it doesn't stand alone, I mean, I, I guess I would disagree with that. I think I think it has great power on its own, but it it, it certainly is uh, a piece. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, I wouldn't say it isn't a great musical piece. For me, it just doesn't make sense without the visuals, probably because that's how it was introduced to me. Well, yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, certainly it it is meant to complement the film, and and that's the best way to experience it. Uh, but but the style of the music is very much uh, in the vein of minimalism as well. So. Uh, if you're not a fan of, say, Philip Glass or John Adams or some of these more minimalist composers, you may be kind of off-put by how austere much of the music is. Uh, there, there are certainly uh, many solo or solo vocal parts, uh, even solo instrumental parts. So there are portions of the score where it just seems very, uh, very thin in many ways, but. Again, in the context of the film, when you see it with the film, those are very deliberate choices, and uh, that that fragile kind of musical choice 
accentuates the fragility of what we're seeing on screen. So it, they're very much meant to complement each other, but uh, it, it has become a real classic piece of contemporary classical music, which uh, is something that there hasn't really been much of. Uh, there are a lot of contemporary classical composers working, but very few reach those uh, heights of fame. In terms of Richard Einhorn, I think he's gone to compose other things, but this has definitely been his piece he's uh, most well known for. And, uh, I'll occasionally even hear bits of this on uh, public radio from time to time, so it still gets played today. And uh, Richard Einhorn, I actually heard a interview snippet with him recently, kind of timed with the the touring of of the uh, the film and seems like a pretty interesting guy, kind of a humble guy, and I think he was caught off guard in terms of how popular this piece has become, and uh, I think he recognized a great film when he saw it, and he had the uh, wherewithal and the uh, the wisdom to uh, compose a piece uh, to complement such a great piece of art. Well, I see it as a, it's an example of mutual enrichment. Uh, the film, uh, Dreyer's work makes his work better, and I think Einhorn's makes uh, Dreyer's work better. Uh, you know, there's the uh, I mean, there's some people who will take silent films and think, you know, the silent film is is the pure cinema. You know, when really it's all about the visual and the sound is kind of this abomination that came about it. We haven't really hit on the fact that this is a silent film uh, so much, and just about that idea of it being a silent film. But you know, silent films always had some kind of score with them. You know, there might have been one that was. Uh, sort of written specifically for it or one that the director or others involved in the creative process really preferred, but it, they never really premiered them or showed them without music. It was, it was always assumed there'd be some kind of a, a musical accompaniment yeah. as it was being projected. And so, you know, I think it's just, it's a real godsend for this particular motion picture that we do have this beautiful piece of music that probably, you know, I mean, who knows what, I can't speak for Dreyer what he would have wanted for it, but Boy, I can't imagine finding a more uh, appropriate piece uh, to come along with these visuals that we have before us today. Yeah, many times silent films were uh, the scores were left to whoever was playing the organ or the piano at the theater that day. Mm -hmm. So it was very much an improvised thing. And there's kind of been a movement in, in contemporary classical uh, composition to write new scores for silent films and voices of light, I think was probably the, the piece that kind of ushered in that movement. So uh, there have been other young composers or, or contemporary classical composers that have tried to make their mark that way, but I don't think anyone's quite achieved the success that uh, Einhorn voices of light has. Right. There is a way in which Einhorn and those that are following in his footsteps have, I think helped uh, preserve and give a new appreciation to the silent cinema, which will certainly always be in, in our day and age, a niche market. But nonetheless, uh, it's good to see that there is a way in which it is being preserved and recognized for what it brings to our understanding of the, of the cinematic world. We probably should take a, a few minutes to talk about the uh, Criterion uh, DVD and, and maybe, um, uh, what we'd like to see in the future in terms of uh, home video release for this title. So uh, this is a fairly early Criterion DVD, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's one that has seen a Blu-ray release. 
in other regions, uh, most notably Masters of Cinema in the UK, uh, released a, a newer restoration of the film. Unfortunately, that transfer has not made it to uh, Region A yet. Uh, hopefully, it will uh, at some point. But uh, I, do, I don't think the Masters of Cinema release has uh, Voices of Light included. I think it has a few other scores. So, uh, again, any any updated release from Criterion, uh, better include that. Because <laughs> it's yes. something that I, as we've said many times, we, we cannot see uh, uh, separate from this film. No, this would be a, an ideal candidate for me. If Criterion's going to update, update any of their DVD titles, this one would be a great one to put on Blu-ray. I don't know where the rights stand with it in terms of you know whether they would have the ability to do that or what would have to be worked out, but it would be great to see a Blu-ray release of it. I, I watched the DVD, just uh, sampled it a little bit recently, and you know it's a, it's a stellar uh, presentation, of course, considering the age of the film and the, also the fact that it was in the late 90s. So it wasn't that long into the world of DVD that this transfer was made and the disc was composed. Uh, you know, it still nonetheless clearly could be remastered, right? It could be presented uh, with even greater clarity now. Uh, and some of the, you know, the issues with the print could be fixed up a bit. Uh, I think, you know, in terms of how they could restore it uh, today. Uh, you know what, you know, just the little sidebar on on this issue of the, the DVD and its presentation, I was thinking about that in terms of how we did have the unique opportunity to hear a live performance of Voices of Light as we were watching a screening of the film uh, recently and comparing that to the uh, watching it of the, on the DVD, uh, there was something about having that live performance of the music that was really quite exciting and actually made me... Uh, appreciate just the the theatrical aspect of this film in a way that you can't necessarily quite get on the DVD. Uh, everything works and syncs up perfectly, whereas with the live performance, it was pretty close, but there's a couple times where it wasn't maybe 100% in sync with what at least uh, we've seen on the Criterion presentation. Uh, there's also was, you know, maybe a little bit of difference in terms of the, the quality of the singers and you're dealing with the real acoustics and, uh, you know, the, just the nature of the space, which was beautiful, but it was different. Uh, and it just made me appreciate just the the way in which that live performance gave a a certain organic quality to the the viewing of the film. Whereas obviously in the case of a DVD or Blu-ray, it would still be very much a digital you know uh, presentation of the film. Could still be beautiful and wonderful in so many ways, but there is a kind of a unquantifiable difference uh, in in those two formats of presentation. Yeah, just the setting was spectacular. I mean, just to hear, I mean, I would have been satisfied just hearing Voices of Light performed live in a, a cathedral uh, setting. As you mentioned, the acoustics were, were phenomenal. But that coupled with the film uh, in a cathedral that was packed, I mean, it was a great turnout, great audience. Mm -hmm. uh, has a lot it was also nice because it was right after Prince died. It was nice to see people gathering in Minneapolis without it being about Prince. No, I, I did spot a few uh, people uh, dressed in purple walking by the cathedral, I think heading toward First Avenue. Right. Yeah, uh, the ongoing block party that was uh, uh, that was planned. but yeah, It's still going on probably now, right now. Probably, so. probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was... Uh, it really was a special experience, and I'm, I'm glad we were able to take part in that. But 
It just reminded me too the the power of of seeing a film like that with an audience. Uh, a lot of the films, if when I do get a chance to to go to the theater, a lot of the films I'm seeing with a pretty small audience. I'm, I'm generally going to matinees or at off times, so it was a nice reminder uh, to just remember the the power of of, of experiencing something with an attentive audience, nice. and hopefully this will be touring in other cities or cities as well. I know locally um, it was a, a local oratorio society that, that hosted it, but it sounds like Voices of Light has been kind of making the rounds. And if anyone has an opportunity to experience this uh, live or in a setting like this, uh, it's it's really, really not to be missed. Yeah. Well, the, of course it does have the, such a setting or such a presentation of it would have also a very self-selecting crowd, which would be engaged. But it also, you know, there was an element of novelty in how we watched it most recently, which really does harken back to what was cinema back in that era, you know, back when this film would have been made. It wasn't, there weren't franchises per se. I mean, there was shorts and serials that were out there, but nothing like we have today. It was more of a luxury thing, either for the high class you know, kind of way of going out on the town, or it was very much a boisterous thing, you know, for uh, people to come into the city and have sort of a big, huge kind of kick over this. Uh, but it, it it was an event, you know, when you went to the movies back in the 20s, it was an event. It wasn't something you just sort of did because you had a rain or you had nothing better to do, or you just felt like Marvel had control over your entire life and you had to see every movie that they put out. You know, it was something that you actually went to see because you loved it. Yeah, because you uh, you're excited about it. And that was great to have that feeling uh, in watching it when we did, because you don't get that sense in the in the theater too often nowadays. I just like to take moments, too, where, you know, if you if you know a film very well and say you're seeing it in a revival setting, uh, take a minute to actually look at the audience around you and and see, get a sense of their experience. So just taking five seconds and turning around and and just looking at other people's faces, experiencing this, uh, is always a memorable thing to me uh, as well. To do something like that, that may come off as odd to some people, but <laughs> it's something. Well, I know it's concerning to the people around us when you do it, Matt. But <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no. you're right. I mean, that's that that's a great thing to do. I mean, we, I remember we went and saw a revival of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was it was so great to see that with an energy with an audience, you know, as much as I love that film, it was great to be with an audience and to kind of feed off of them. As I was watching this movie, I'd seen however many times before it, I felt the same thing with the passion of Joan of Arc. Now there's one part of this we haven't talked about. It's probably not on anybody's mind, but mine. Uh, but during the, the final, the climax, as, as Joan is being executed, there's this cutaway that Dreyer puts in there that has always struck me as being very significant, and yet I have no idea how to interpret it. And it's uh, he cuts away uh, to show a baby nursing. Uh, and it's this close-up of this baby nursing. You can see you know, the mother's breast, and the baby turns away from the breast and kind of stares to look at Joan, and then just goes right back on to nursing. And I, I'll be damned if I actually know how to interpret what he's trying to communicate there, but it has always struck me. Uh, that that must be a particular point of great importance to Dreyer and what he understands to be happening uh, in the, at that particular moment in the film. I, I guess I always kind of interpreted that as uh, the idea of original sin, you know, that even this baby 
it's kind of looking at uh, Joan with condemning eyes in many ways, uh, or is at least mad that uh, he or she's being distracted from nursing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's something as simple as that. Right. Well, I was wondering, it's either that or perhaps, you know, maybe a certain kind of uh, uh, a nihilism perhaps at work, you know, the sense of, you know, here's this little baby just goes on, whatever, who cares, and just moves on. So there's maybe a nihilistic way it could be interpreted. There could be that, you know, sense of original sin that you're suggesting. Uh, perhaps, you know, it's it's really just uh, a point of saying, you know, that, you know, we have a future generation coming up and this is the world in which we're bringing them, you know, the, a world of, of death and of injustice and yet at the same time of, of great heroics as, as shown in Joan of Arc. Uh, it's, it's always been something that's been fascinating to me though. And I not yet settled on really what I think he's trying to convey in it, but certainly it's a very deliberate choice on his part. Well, at this point we probably should start wrapping things up, uh, to close the program. We'll just kind of take a look at the uh, film as a whole and and decide, you know, is this a film worthy of the criterion collection? Right. Uh, Well, I think you got to consider this film on its own terms as just its own work of art. And then also then, you know, especially with, with the Criterion Collection setting up, do you have to consider its place in cinematic history? Uh, and then you have to consider, does it actually hold up as a, as a work of art today? And I think on all three, it, 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 it passes the test. I think as its own work of art from when it was released, uh, it's a success. It, it's, you know, Dreyer was proud of it. He, he accomplished what he set out to do. You have revolutionary editing, revolutionary camera work. Uh, you have a significant uh, step forward, I think, in cinematic acting with Falconetti's performance. Uh, it's it's a powerful piece on its own. Uh, and so I think it, it definitely w- works out as a, just a film. It, as Historically, it, it certainly changes you know, a lot. I mean, it takes a lot of what was already happening with expressionism, adds some of realism into it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a... a you know, as, even though it's a silent film, I mean, it could easily have uh, worked as a as a sound film, as that was kind of entering into cinema at that point in time. Uh, and then, you know, all these years later, it still is impactful. It's it has a hold on its audience. So I would say this definitely merits inclusion in the Criterion Collection. I would agree. I mean, it, it's no surprise that we both feel that way, considering our right. conversation uh, up to this point. I don't think we really uh, disagreed on much or had uh, anything really negative to say here about this film. And, and, and going through different titles in the Criterion Collection, this, this may be uh, a section where it, it is not much of a surprise to say, well, this is a worthy film. But right. I, I think there may be other films that we, we disagree on. But this is certainly, it's a classic of uh, a pillar of not only silent cinema, but just cinema in general. Right. Required, required viewing for anyone and everyone. Uh, one of those films you have to see before you die sort of thing. And I'm just uh, hoping for a Criterion Blu-ray upgrade at some point. They uh, seem to be uh, very selective in terms of, uh, of what they're upgrading these days. I, I think they just have too much of a, a back catalog of, of titles. They just want to get out there. Right. Um, I think they just uh, re- or announced uh, wo- uh, Woman in the Dunes as being a, a Blu-ray upgrade, which is about the last title I expected them to announce as an upgrade. But uh, just the fact that they're doing any kind of upgrades uh, gives me hope that, that an updated version of this would be um, 
forthcoming. So the fact that or the fact that Masters of Cinema uh, did release uh, a version on Blu-ray is encouraging too, because sometimes the um, Criterion and MLC seems to uh, kind of mirror each other uh, at times in terms of what they're releasing. Right, right. No, I mean, I would, I would definitely hope to see a, a new Blu-ray of it. Definitely keep the features that are on it; they're good features. Uh, but I wouldn't have had to see some new ones. Uh, you know, um, the the features are limited. Uh, they have a nice commentary on it uh, that actually gives a great sense of the history of the film. Uh, but I would love to see some new interviews or some new work uh, added in if they can do that as well. Well, sounds good. Uh, thanks for listening to our our first episode and. <laughs> We will uh, hopefully continue this uh, this venture. So our, our future titles will be uh, certainly not in chronological order, as, as indicated by our, our first pick. So we're not going to be going by spine number, and uh, we may even discuss films that are not in the Criterion Collection from time to time. But right, and it may be even worth just pointing out. You know, today, I mean, I happened to pick this one, so I kicked it off. Uh, whereas Matt, you know, the idea we're kind of going to rotate. So if you you pick a title, then you'd kick it off and kind of run it, uh, so that it's you know going to be just a, basically two guys who, though they have many other things that would probably be better use of their time, are going to waste it talking about movies, and um, in the vain attempt to think that somebody else might actually care what they have to say. And on that note, we'll wrap up. <laughs> All right. Yes, it's, uh, it's been fun. So I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Thanks. Take care.